Amen, amen. That is so, so good to sing, isn't it? Oh, that's so good. I love it. I love it. And I'll tell you, I can really get used to this whole one service idea. I'm kind of digging this. The shot clock is turned off, and I can go as long as I want to. But I know this is true. There's nothing more dangerous than standing between a bunch of Southern Baptists and a plate of food. So I've got to make sure I talk fast to get through so we can feed your hungry bellies. Does that sound good? I love it. I love it. I want to share a couple of wins with you that I've discovered the last couple of weeks that are just so, so encouraging of what God's doing in the life of our church. So a couple of weeks ago, I had a woman who approached me who told me, Kenneth, about six months ago, I approached you and told you how for years I've been struggling with an addiction to alcohol. And I wanted you to know that by God's grace, I am now six months sober. And not and it's praise the Lord. I love it. I love it. Praise the Lord. But what's also cool, she said, Kenneth, I got to share my faith with someone recently. And she, I said, well, tell me about it. And she said, there was this homeless man who was laying on a bench. And I thought, oh, Lord, I feel like you're telling me to go tell him about Jesus. And I don't really want to. But she did. And she went and sat down with him and got to share the gospel with him. She didn't get to lead him to the Lord. But I told her, I said, I am so proud of you. You're initiating. You're looking for opportunities to share the gospel. And I thought, man, that is awesome. You keep going. Keep clinging tight to Jesus. Flee from the foolishness of alcohol. And you pursue hard after Jesus and you keep preaching Jesus. So, so proud of her. But there's also another lady in our church who just loves Jesus. She oozes Jesus. Well, 2.30 in the morning, not long ago, a man shows up on her front porch without his shirt on. And she's living by herself and he's ringing the doorbell and obviously not in his right mind. And so she answers the door and it's like, okay, what are we going to do in this situation? And she calls a family member down the street to come down to make sure he, he's there to kind of make sure nothing bad happens. And they call the police to make sure that he's taken care of. Well, while he's staying there and they're waiting for the police to come, she thought, well, this is my opportunity to tell him about Jesus. And so here's this guy with his shirt off, not in his full mind, and she just has an opportunity to share the gospel with this guy. And all of a sudden, there's a conviction that comes upon him. And he, he tells her, I... I've walked away from Jesus. He hasn't walked away from me. I've walked away from him. And God used that as a moment in her life. And I just love hearing stories about how God is using all of us to tell people about Jesus. That's why we get to do what we do every day. God has left us here to glorify him and by investing in people who will impact their world for Jesus. And like this, this woman who at 2.30 in the morning is sharing the gospel, this, this woman is my hero. She is a great hero of mine in the faith. Do you have heroes? Someone that you look up to, someone that you admire for who they are and the kind of impact that they have had with their life. I think it's good not only to have living heroes, I think it's good to have heroes that are dead. People who have already lived for the Lord Jesus, they've invested their life, they gave their all, and we can look back on their lives, and we can look them for instruction and inspiration and encouragement. Some of my dead heroes are guys like Charles Spurgeon and guys like William Wilberforce. But there's also one in the Bible who's one of my all-time favorites, and it's the Apostle Paul. 
Here is a guy who was so radically transformed by the gospel. He went from persecutor of the church to a church planter. The very man who wanted to to squelch the gospel of Jesus Christ, God uses him as one of its greatest advocates. It's through his suffering that God used him to make much of Jesus. Here is a man who wanted to stop everything that's happening with the gospel because as a Pharisee, the good news of Jesus was ruining his kingdom. It was ruining his ideology of who the true God is. And so as the Apostle Paul, who is Saul at the time in Acts chapter 7, he's gathered with his boys, the Pharisees, and they, as they are throwing stones at Stephen, as they are breaking Stephen's bones, and as they are crushing his head with rock, here is Saul holding their garments, holding their robes, so that they can have a full follow-through to take this guy out who's preaching this heresy. But this heresy that he thought was ridiculous was in fact the very power of God that transformed his life. Because on the road to Damascus, Jesus came and met with him, transformed his life and the rest of history. It's amazing how God can take the suffering of one man and use it as means for the sake of the gospel. Paul gives us his resume for suffering in 2 Corinthians 11. Listen to the type of suffering that he endured for the sake of the gospel. He says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. You see, Saul was a man who was well acquainted with suffering, but it's against the backdrop of suffering that he was able to write Philippians 4.13, indeed, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You see, suffering is a mark that you belong to Jesus. As those who follow Christ, who keep in step with his commands, we too have to be ready to endure suffering when it comes. And as your pastor, I want to prepare you for that. I want to prepare you for that moment. I want to prepare you for that conversation. I want to prepare you for that season so that when suffering comes knocking on your door, you know how to answer with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Simon Peter is referencing in 1 Peter chapter 4. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going through a sermon series as a faith family called Imperishable Righteousness. We're now on our 22nd message, walking through this book of 1 Peter as a faith family. We've been unpacking all of the rich truths that God has given to us in the gospel of his son. 
In fact, if, if you're kind of gotten behind, I want to encourage you, you can go download our app and you can catch up on all of these sermons. So if you're out for a run, if you're cooking dinner, if you're sitting in I-65 traffic, you can download these sermons and it's a great way for you to grow in the gospel and to see how God has worked throughout the ages through this special letter that he's given to the church. In fact, our app, I wanna encourage you to download it. It is rich with information and resources that will help you grow in the gospel. It's got a Bible reading plan, a place for prayer requests, opportunities to serve, to find a small group. You can listen to messages. You can financially invest in the kingdom. Just a great one one-stop shop of all things Westwood. Well, as Peter is writing this letter, he's writing to believers who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. In fact, he tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. He's saying, listen, persecution's going to come, so don't be surprised by it. As this fiery ordeal is going to rise up against you, don't be surprised, but you can be prepared of how to stand firm in the gospel. You are to stand firm in the true grace of God. And so this morning as we look at the text, I want to show you three ways that you can prepare for suffering. The first is this. Number one, live for God's will. Live for God's will. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Peter writes, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. Here in the first three verses of chapter 4, Peter is holding up two types of people, those who suffer and those who sin. For those who suffer, this is the way of following Christ. Verse 1, he starts off with the word, therefore. Well, as good Bible readers, you and I both know that whenever you come across the word therefore, you have to know what it's there for. So you have to go backwards to see what is leading up to it. And what's leading up to verse 1 of chapter 4 is the gospel. We covered this last week when we were looking at verses 18 through 22. Is that when suffering comes, we run to the gospel. We see Jesus who suffered for sins at the cross, who was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. That he indeed he was raised from the dead. He went and preached to the spirits in prison. And he is now seated at the right hand of God, high and exalted, ruling and reigning over all things. So verse 1, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, since Jesus went to the cross, verse 1, arm yourselves with the same understanding. We must come to the realization that we too are going to suffer just as Jesus did, just as Jesus was enduring suffering for us all the way to the point of death on a cross. So too are we to arm ourselves with this understanding that we too are going to suffer. We too are going to endure difficulty and struggle in the life of following Jesus. Peter commands us to arm yourselves. That's a battle terminology. It means ready to fight. It's like a football locker room before a big game. 
There's almost a hush in the locker room as men are putting on their pads and they're putting on their helmets and they're, they're getting battle ready. Their minds are girded. They're ready to go and tackle the field and give their very best. Well, the same thing, that, that whole idea, that's verse 1. He's saying, arm yourselves, get ready for battle. This is a kind of mindset that you have to have as a believer. Is that indeed you are going to experience suffering. So arm yourselves with this understanding. Get ready for this type of battle that's coming your way. Is that you are going to endure great difficulty. You see, this battle that we fight though, it's not for a trophy that's going to rust or collect dust. The kind of battle that we're engaging in is a fight for your soul. Eternity is at stake in our fight that we wage. We do not fight against flesh and blood. We fight against the spiritual forces and the principalities that are in the heavens. So we are to arm ourselves, verse 1, with the same understanding. And just as Jesus died and suffered, so too will we suffer even to the point of death. Simon Peter knew this was his future because Jesus told him this was going to happen. In John chapter 21, verse 18, Jesus told Simon Peter, Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands. And someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus told him, follow me. This is the kind of suffering, Peter, you're about to go through. As my ambassador, as one who belongs to me, I want you to know that you're going to suffer and you're going to die and they're going to nail you to a tree. You're going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. It's going to be difficulty that's going to come your way. You see, since Jesus suffered and died, so too should you, verse 1, arm yourselves with the understanding that you may suffer and die for Jesus. But you got to grab hold of this truth. Before you're willing to suffer and die for Jesus, you must first live for Jesus. You're not going to give your life for Jesus if you're not following him, if you're not living for Christ. When I was in Kentucky, as a student pastor, I was discipling a young man um, whose name was Todd. Todd was just a great, awesome kid. I, I loved him so much. Football player. And, and, and the thing that was special about Todd is he always told you what he was thinking. I was like, he was like, he would speak, and then I'm like, what, what in the world are you talking? He was just a great kid to hang around. It's a big teddy bear. But one of the things I was talking with Todd about, one day martyrdom came up about laying down your life for the sake of Jesus. And he said, man, I would die for Jesus. And I said, well, Todd, you're telling me that you're ready to die for Jesus? Yeah, I'm not scared. I said, okay. I said, Todd, when was the last time you read your Bible? Silence. Todd, when was the last time you told someone about Jesus? Silence. And I said, Todd, you're not going to give your life for Jesus if you're not living for him. It begins with following Jesus right now. Now, the goal for believers, we're not seeking death. We're not seeking martyrdom. But we're making ourselves postured in such a way to say, Lord, I'm willing to give everything I have for you. I'm arming myself with this mentality. I'm preparing myself with this reality that to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
I'm going to belong to Jesus, which means I must be willing to even suffer for him. But once you get to this point where you understand, okay, I get it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suffer. I'm going to go through difficulty. I'm going to go through trial in my life just as Jesus did. Well, what happens next? What happens, verse 1, you no longer want to sin. Look at verse 1. He says, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. This means that you're through. You're done. It means you're so over with the sin in your life. You're just sick and tired of it. And this means that you're not perfect doesn't mean that you're now sinless, but it means that you no longer desire to sin. I'm not sure about you parents, but sometimes my kids tend to argue with each other. Anybody else deal with that? Okay, sometimes my boys kind of stick out their chests, and they're like, I'm smarter than you. Other one's like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm smarter than you. And they go back and forth, back and forth. And then the other one's like, hey, I'm stronger than all y'all. And the other one's like, no, 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 I'm stronger than you. And then it's like, no, I'm faster than you. No, I'm faster than you. And so it's just like they're chirping all the time. And then there's like this dad voice that comes out of me. Boys, you know what I'm saying? You know that dad voice that just comes out? It's like, whoa, where'd that come from? Boys, and I'll say this, knock it off. We're done. We're not doing this anymore. That's verse one. He's saying, knock it off. No more. We don't do this anymore. We're done. Verse 1, we are done with sin. We don't want to go this way anymore. As followers of Jesus, when you get to the point when you're saying, I'm willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel, you're like, I don't want to sin anymore. I want to flee all forms of sexual immorality. I want to pursue hard after Christ. I want to be done with sin once and forever. And when you're finished with sin, you're saying, that's enough. I want no more of it. I'm done with sin. So for the rest of my life, verse 2, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, so whether I've got 10 days, 10 months, or 10 years left in this body, I'm no longer going to live for the human desires, but I'm going to live for God's will. That word for human desires, it means lustful passions. You see, your desire for God's will has got to be greater than your desire for sex. Your desire for God's will has got to be greater than your desire, the craving that you have for food or caffeine or alcohol or money or power or pornography. You're saying, I want God's will more than anything else in my life. God, I want to do what you want for me. So, Kenneth, what is God's will? Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is God's will that you would be sanctified. God wants to conform you into the image of Jesus. Romans 8, Paul says, those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. It is God's will to make you look like Jesus. That is his hot pursuit is conforming your desires, conforming your character, conforming your will to look like Jesus. And so as those who are ready to suffer and those who are enduring hardship for the sake of the gospel, we have armed ourselves with this mentality. We're done away with sin. We're no longer pursuing the things of the flesh. We're now pursuing to live after God's will. 
And when you surrender your life to God's will for your life, of him conforming you into the image of Jesus, you realize you're no longer the captain of your own life. He calls the shots. The Lord is the one who directs your steps. God is the one who is sovereign over every part of your life. Paul says it like this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, for I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who, who loved me and gave himself up for me. For those who belong to Jesus, you died. You have been crucified with Christ. Your old nature is done. Your selfish desires are done. They were nailed at Calvary. But now the life you live is for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You now live for God's will. Paul says it like this in Acts chapter 20. He says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race, to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. My life is worth nothing to me because I now belong to Jesus. He is my passion. He is my identity. He is who I am living for. So for those who belong to Jesus, we no longer live for sin. We no longer live for self. But rather we live for the glory of God. Everything we do is for Jesus. You see, those two words at the tail end of our vision as a church aren't just there randomly. Our mission as a church is to invest in people who will do what? Who will impact their world for what purpose? For Jesus. We exist for the glory of King Jesus. Your purpose in life is to make him look great. As a mom and as a dad, as an employee, as a boss, as a sports fan and as a coach, you exist to make Jesus look great. This is how you and I function day in and day out. We exist to, to, to make Jesus look glorious and praiseworthy and awesome, to make Jesus look beautiful. This is why we do what we do. But you see, as believers, we, we don't go back to our old way of life. We're not going back to the slavery to sin, but rather we now live for Christ. And so Peter says, verse 3, he says, for there's already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. You see, before you knew Jesus, this was your old way of life. But you're not that way anymore. This is you have a new life in Christ. You belong to Jesus. You see, these six acts of wickedness that Peter refers to, verse 3, are marks of people who don't know Jesus. Drinking parties and sexual immorality. These are marks of the Gentiles. These are marks of people who do not know God. You see, living a party life reveals you do not know Jesus. I cannot be any more clear about that. The Bible is crystal clear. If you are living for sin and for self, you are not in Christ. Paul says it like this in Galatians 5. He says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, 
outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is this mentality, especially in the South, that I prayed a prayer when I was a kid, but I can go live however I want to. If you're not living for Christ, you're showing that your decision as a kid wasn't legit. You're not for real in Christ. Because if you belong to Jesus, you love Jesus, and you want to live for Jesus. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 6. He says this, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or men who practice homosexuality, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And such, excuse me, and some of you used to be like this. But you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul's saying, listen, this used to be who you were. Such were some of you, past tense. This is no longer who you are. If you belong to Jesus, we're turning away from the desires of the flesh. We're no longer pursuing the ways of the world. We're now pursuing Christ. We want to make much of Jesus. We now live for him. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. You see, the good news for the Christ follower is you aren't who you used to be. Your old sin no longer defines you. You're not defined by your past. God doesn't take your past and shame you and rub your face in it. He takes your past, he takes your shame, and he nails it to his son. God sends his son to go to the cross so that every vile thing that you and I have ever done is nailed to King Jesus. And you are set free from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin. You no longer fear judgment because the Lord Jesus Christ took your judgment at the cross. This is what we glory in. This is what we celebrate in. Is that you and I, though our sins are like scarlet, we are made white as snow through the precious blood of Jesus. This is what he has afforded to you in the gospel. Is that you're not who you used to be. You're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You're not who you used to be. You're not defined. Your identity is not wrapped up on the things you did in your past. Your identity is in Christ. You are who he says you are through your faith in Jesus. That's what the gospel provides for us, is that when you bank your life upon Christ You no longer desire to live for sin or for self, but rather you desire to live for God's will. But I want you to see number two in the text. Is that as you prepare for suffering, you must endure rejection. You must endure rejection. Look with me at verse four. Peter says this. He says, they are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living. And they slander you. 
They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, the Gentiles, their unbelieving friends, their unbelieving family, these first century believers, they're surprised. Why are you not coming to hang out with us anymore? Why don't you come get drunk with us anymore? Why don't you come party with us anymore? You're not fun like you used to be. What happened? They are surprised. Like, what happened? Like, we had a good thing going, dude. This was awesome. You were, like, cool, and we would just do stupid things together. It was awesome. You don't laugh at crude jokes anymore. You don't make racist comments anymore. You don't go clubbing with us anymore. You don't get drunk with us anymore. What's wrong with you? Why'd you get all religious on us? Why are you always judging me? Okay, here's what's happening. When someone says, you're judging me, what's happening is John chapter 3. We're familiar with John 3, 16, but if you fast forward to John chapter 3, verse 19, let me show you what's happening. Jesus says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. You see, when you put your faith in Jesus, the light of Jesus in you begins to pour out onto others. And the more that you're full of Jesus, the brighter your light shines, the more the darkness hates the light. So when someone rises up against you and says, quit judging me, you're actually saying, it ain't me. It's Jesus. He is shining through me. And see, their darkness is, is where they want to go. They don't want to expose it. It's kind of like this. As a parent, when your kids are sleeping in their teenage years, it's 6 a.m., it's time for school, covers are over their heads, what do you do? You turn the light on. Ah! I don't want that. I want to go to sleep. I want to go back in the dark. That's what's happening in the heart of unbelievers. As the light of Jesus is shining, they're like, no, 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 I don't want that. I want to stay in the dark. I like my sin. I like evil. I like living for sin. I like living for myself. I don't want that anymore. But for us who belong to Jesus, it's the light of Christ. But what happens? We see here in the text, they mock you. They belittle you. They make fun of you behind your back. They gossip about you. Which, by the way, shows they weren't really your true friends in the first place. But then Peter reminds believers of the long game. See, so often you and I, we're so caught up in the short game. We want to be cool and popular and awesome in the eyes of people around us. But he says, listen, I want to remind you of an even longer game that's taking place here. Look at verse 5. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, no one can escape the all-seeing eye of God who will one day hold every man accountable for everything he has ever done, said, or thought. There's an accountability that's coming. For the unbeliever, it's coming, which they're going to give an account before the Lord. You know, um, in my previous life before I knew Jesus, I loved hip-hop music. 
And one of my heroes at the time, and I'm ashamed to admit it, but I'll go for a little there, was a guy named Tupac. And Tubac and Master P were known for this, this term that was, was called, only God can judge me. That was a phrase. And this little phrase in hip-hop culture has now spread into, throughout, it's permeated our culture. Because I've seen it now on tattoos, I see t-shirts that are designed with it, only God can judge me. And when I see it on bumper stickers or on t-shirts or on people's bodies, I grieve in my heart because they are exactly right. God will judge you. And it will be an awful judgment for those who do not belong to Jesus. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And his judgment will be just, it will be swift, and it will be right. He will make no mistakes when time comes for him to judge the living and the dead, verse five. In fact, the Bible, God is so gracious, he shows us the future. Can I show you what this is gonna look like? Keep your finger in 1 Peter 4. Fast forward to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Let me show you what this judgment is going to look like for those who do not belong to Jesus. The apostle John is on the island of Patmos. He's been exiled because he won't shut up. He keeps talking about Jesus. And so instead of killing him, they're like, let's just put him on an island where he won't talk to anybody. Well, God never wastes time. While he's there on the island suffering alone, God shows up and reveals himself to him in the form of a vision, thus the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 20, God pulls back the curtain on the future and he says, this is what the future holds for those who do not belong to Jesus. Revelation 20 verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Those who do not belong to Jesus, this is your future. Flee. This does not have to be your future. Run to Jesus. Get rid of your old friends and run to Jesus. Eternity is at stake. You see, the reality of hell should drive us to a passion for evangelism. Wanting to tell those who don't know Jesus, come to Christ, believe upon him, trust in Jesus, flee from the wrath that is to come. If this book is true, and it is, this is what's coming for those who do not know Jesus, so flee, run to Jesus. For us as a church, we should have a greater passion for the nations. The fact that there are more than 2 billion people who have little to no access to the gospel. How can we help those who have never heard of Jesus escape this day? And it's through us financially investing. It's through all of us being a part of this great commission work of making much of Jesus there and here. Because we've got to get this gospel to as many people as possible. Because this is the future for those who do not turn and trust in Jesus. This is what the Bible says. 
In verse 5, God will judge the living and the dead. And that should break our hearts. But God is just and he will not be mocked. And right now, if someone is still breathing without Jesus, it is God's patience and grace. But if they don't know Jesus, it does not end well. Do you see the urgency of this gospel? Do you see what Simon Peter is driving home here? Eternity is at stake. So even in the midst of your suffering for Jesus, as you are turning away from the passions of the flesh, as you are living for God's will, you have to be willing to endure rejection from the world around you because eternity is at stake. For those who don't know Christ, it is a sad, bleak future. In that great white throne, it's coming in which every word, action, and attitude is going to be laid bare before the eyes of him of whom we must give an account. You see, that's what makes getting up at 2.30 in the morning and sharing Jesus, this is where it matters. It matters that you're willing to verbally share the gospel with your coworkers and your neighbors that you, you literally lay yourself before the Lord and say, God, how can you best use my life? I may not have much time left, but whatever I've got, it's yours. So send me wherever you want me to go. Uh, I, I'm available to you. My money is not mine. My house is not mine. Everything I have is yours. I want to manage it. I want to steward it and use it all for the sake of King Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Are you facing any rejection? If you're a believer in Jesus and people are not rejecting you, your light is not shining bright enough. If people don't squirm when you come in the room, you're not shining bright enough. If people don't get angry with you, your light's not shining bright enough. You see, when you exude the light of Jesus, those who are in the dark, they feel very uncomfortable in your presence. Now, we're not seeking to make people feel uncomfortable. But we are seeking to stay faithful to Jesus. And I'm saying, oh, Lord, take my heart and my life and may you shine bright. And I want them to know your love. I want them to be captivated by the grace that you've afforded to us through your death and your victorious resurrection. And so as you go out this week, shine bright for the glory of Jesus. And be ready and be willing to endure Rejection. Third and finally, I want you to see here in the text, as we prepare for suffering, ultimately hope in what is to come. Verse 6. Peter points to the future for these believers, and he says, For this reason the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. It's a tricky verse, how he, how he words this. But in essence, Peter, verse 6, he's referencing people who, have, excuse me, people who have heard the gospel. They have believed while they were still alive, but they have since died since he wrote this letter. So these are believers who've trusted in Christ, but they have died. Now, whether they died of natural causes or of martyrdom, we don't know, but they have died in Christ. But they have been judged in the flesh according to human standards. I mean, they have died physically, but now, verse 6, they are alive in their spirits. They are triumphant. They are alive. They are victorious because they are with Christ. They're now more alive than they have ever been. 
If you have a family member, a spouse, a child who has died in Christ, may I say to you, they are more alive now than they have ever been. They're in the kingdom of Christ. They are with Jesus. And you can have great joy and confidence that he takes care of his own. And here Simon Peter is saying, as you suffer, I'll remind you that even though you're going to be judged in the flesh, your body's going to die, your spirit is alive with Christ. When you leave this earth, you are with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You go be with Jesus and your spirit is alive. You see, for the Christ follower, the worst thing, which is death, becomes the best thing, heaven. That's what the gospel does. It takes the worst thing and makes it the best thing. Jesus accomplishes that for you, that even death itself has no claim on you anymore because you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the benefits, y'all, of leaving this earthly tent is that you're not going to sin anymore. That verse one, and y'all, I long for this. I long for this day. You're going to be with Christ, and you're no longer going to have the desire to sin, and you're no longer going to have the ability to sin. I'm so ready for that. I'm ready to shed my life of all of the anxiety and fear and worry and laziness and impatience and all of the sin that's in my heart. I'm ready to be done with it because we're going to be with Christ. We are going to be alive and well in the presence of our Savior. And that's what we long for. So here's the impact point. Play offense with the gospel. This week, I want to challenge you. Share Jesus with three people this week. Here's my challenge. We've got to get this gospel out to as many people as possible. And so if we mobilize thousands of people to be having gospel conversations or just initiating Jesus conversations, watch what happens. God's going to begin to work in your life. You're going to begin praying more for lost people. You've been praying, God, would you open their eyes, help them to see, would you save them? God, would you do what I cannot, and that is to save. I want to challenge you, play offense with the gospel. Y'all, life is too short to be playing defense for Jesus. To be in maintenance mode, to play management, let's just take it easy. Let's keep everybody in front of us, a little prevent defense, not upset the apple cart. What? We've already won. The victory is ours in Christ. Therefore, let's go march forth in the victory that is already ours in a resurrected Savior. We go live for the sake of Jesus. So here's the challenge. Go play offense with the gospel. Let's go share Jesus with those who have yet to believe. And let's watch and see what God will do. Because who knows? Maybe one day, God will look at you and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. And other believers are going to look at you, and they may even call you their hero. Let's go make